Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. This is Early Stuart England, Episode 85, The Covenant. We left off last time with Scotland in crisis. A massive riot in Edinburgh had prevented the introduction of a new Book of Common Prayer that many Scots feared would turn their church into a copy of the English one. The Scottish government, divided between rival factions of nobles and bishops, was powerless to resist the popular demonstrations. Paralyzed, the Scottish Privy Council looked to the king to resolve the situation. But Charles was hundreds of miles away in London, and had only a limited understanding of events on the ground in Edinburgh. Placating the crowds, without surrendering royal dignity by caving to popular pressure, would be a delicate task, and one, as we've seen, unsuited to Charles's character. Always touchy about his authority, Charles was never going to react well to open disobedience. This stubbornness was on full display in the king's response. You'll recall that the Scottish Privy Council was unable to respond to the events of the 23rd of July. The protesters had organized resistance alarmingly quickly, and effectively taken control of the streets of Edinburgh. Meanwhile, the government in the capital was busy pointing fingers at each other. The bishops blamed the civil government for not backing them up, while the Earl of Treguer and the other nobles on the Privy Council blamed the bishops for provoking the riots with their aggressive actions. The Privy Council was unable to do much to stop the protests and was unwilling to offer any concessions without royal approval. Therefore, they suspended the distribution of the prayer book and awaited instructions from the king. On the 4th of August, those instructions arrived. They were entirely unhelpful. Charles's initial response was to demand the authorities in Scotland take a firmer line. His statement to the Privy Council, I mean to be obeyed, left no room for flexibility. In this, Charles betrayed his lack of understanding of what was going on in Edinburgh. His officials there had no way to enforce obedience, and so this flat demand for it could only fail, making him look weak. But the blame should not entirely fall on Charles's shoulders. For one thing, his ignorance was the result of conflicting information coming out of Scotland. Lord Treasurer Treguer and Archbishop Spottiswood were both feeding London a narrative designed to discredit the other. Providing the king with an accurate assessment of events was not their priority. Secondly, the British problem reared its head again. Charles could not treat Scotland in isolation. His primary focus at this point was how things looked in England. Remember, in August 1637, Prynne, Burton, and Bastwick had just been publicly punished. This was supposed to be an example that strengthened the orthodoxy of the church, but the three men had become the focus of popular grumbling. If Charles were to back down in the face of popular resistance in Scotland, he feared that English Puritans would follow the Scottish example. The stakes were far too high for Charles to give in. But even if Charles's demand for obedience was understandable, it was a political disaster. The Scottish Privy Council immediately saw that complying with the king's demand was impossible. Calls for obedience would almost certainly turn the protest into an open rebellion. Treguer sent word to Charles, 
begging leave to travel to London and explain the situation in person. Meanwhile, the Privy Council did what they could to satisfy both the king and the crowd. They published a declaration calling for the offending book to be distributed to all parishes, but included no requirement for ministers to actually use it in services. This fancy legal footwork satisfied no one, and the paralysis continued. At least, the paralysis in government continued. So far, we've been tracking the state's response to the riots of the 23rd of July. With the Privy Council surrendering the initiative, the protesters determined the course of events. As I mentioned last episode, the protest benefited from some degree of planning and coordination beforehand. How much is not entirely known, but it appears that the movement built on the infrastructure of the Presbyterian Kirk. This was a grassroots movement that used Kirk sessions and regional meetings of church elders to mobilize action, which meant that it was not just limited to the capital. By the time Charles's response to the crisis reached the Scottish Privy Council, Edinburgh was already flooded with ministers and other parish representatives from around the kingdom looking to register protests with the government. Significantly, these protests focused on the process by which the prayer book had been approved, more than the book itself. Appeals were made to the traditions of the Scottish Reformation. Namely, that religious matters could only be legitimately settled by a general assembly of the clergy, not a small cabal of bishops responsible to no one. Rumors of what the prayer book contained were useful in stirring up emotions. For instance, the Earl of Montrose, a noble sympathetic to the protests, called the book The Brood of the Bowels of the Horror of Babel. But when it came time to make demands, it was the origin story, not the content of the prayer book, that was the problem. From the beginning, the goals of the protest were the immediate withdrawal of the new Book of Common Prayer and the restoration of the General Assembly and Parliament as the only institutions of religious policymaking. But how to achieve these goals? As we've seen in the Midlands Revolt of 1607 or the Essex Food Riots of 1629, popular protest was a dangerous game. In both those cases, the central government at least partially addressed the demands of the protesters. But also in both cases, the central government executed ringleaders. Forcing the state into action required a delicate balance of give and take. The Edinburgh protesters, increasingly referred to as the supplicants, had to put pressure on the government without overtly challenging its legitimacy. After all, they were looking for a negotiated settlement everyone could live with, not the overthrow of the entire political system. The supplicants therefore needed allies within the government, someone that could translate their demands into officially sanctioned concessions. Their target was perhaps obvious, the Earl of Treguer. As the king's top advisor in Scotland, Treguer was ideally positioned to convince Charles to come to the table. Even more than that, Treguer had reason to be sympathetic to the supplicants. This was his opportunity to thoroughly discredit the bishops. If properly managed, this popular protest could be used as an excuse to claw back the influence the bishops had accumulated over the past 20 years, leaving the nobility the uncontested leaders of Scottish society. Also, negotiating a resolution to the current crisis would solidify Treguer's relationship with Charles. The Earl of Menteith had proven his value to the king by mediating a solution to the revocation crisis. If Treguer could do the same now, his position would be unassailable. But this was a gamble. If Treguer failed to broker a settlement, he risked losing the confidence of both the king and the people of Scotland. In the period of government paralysis between August and October, Treguer's task only became more difficult. The longer the supplicants controlled the streets of Edinburgh, the more confident they became. Their demands grew accordingly. 
In addition to banning the new Book of Common Prayer, the supplicants drew up petitions, calling for the removal of the canons Laud had imposed in 1636, the dissolution of the Court of High Commission, the judicial body of the Church, and a ban on bishops serving on the Privy Council. The authorities in Scotland worried that it was only a matter of time before the crowd demanded the reversal of all the Stuart Church reforms, going back to the days of the Earl of Dunbar. More troubling still, some of the protesters were moving beyond religious demands. For instance, there were calls for the king to spend a legally designated amount of time in Scotland, or for Scottish Parliament to be included in foreign policy decisions. Without a firm government hand, things were getting out of control. Treguer's only hope was that the rising pressure convinced Charles to offer concessions before it was too late. However, offering concessions before it was too late was not how Charles normally operated. On the 17th of October, Charles offered his second response to the crisis. If Treguer hoped that the previous two months had convinced the king that he needed to rethink his hardline approach, he was disappointed. Charles ordered the Scottish Privy Council to publish a royal proclamation defending the Book of Common Prayer. For Charles, this was all straightforward. The men and women in the streets had been misled into thinking the book was full of popery, which was patently false. If their king calmly and rationally showed them this was a misconception, they would be satisfied. As always, Charles operated on the assumption that the majority of his subjects were loyal, and any opposition was the result of misinformation on the part of a small group of troublemakers. Charles was often wrong about this, but on this occasion he was even more wrong than usual. Up until this point, the supplicants had been clinging to the belief, or perhaps hope, that they were arguing against the bishops of Scotland, not the king. But now, given the chance to step in and restore proper order, Charles had unambiguously sided with the bishops. The nature of the protest changed the instant the royal proclamation was distributed. Edinburgh exploded into even more violent protests than on the 23rd of July. This time, the crowd targeted both bishops and members of the Privy Council for attempted lynchings. The Privy Council itself abandoned Edinburgh for the safety of Stirling, a well-fortified town 35 miles northwest of the capital. There, they were able to make decisions and take action without being influenced by the mobs, baying for their blood. But this freedom of action came with a cost. Edinburgh, the capital and centre of Scottish political and religious life, was entirely in the hands of what was now, surely, an insurrection. The supplicants took immediate advantage and began to give their movement a more formal structure. They elected a body of representatives to speak for them. Optimists said this would make negotiations easier to manage. Pessimists argued that these men could form a provisional government when negotiations inevitably failed. Crucially, the movement now began to win over members of the nobility. These early converts lent the supplicants legitimacy and voices capable of speaking for them at the negotiating table. The most important were John Leslie, Earl of Roths, who had been a leader of opposition in the Parliament of 1633, Lord Balmerino, the would-be martyr for the cause, and John Campbell, Lord Loudon. You may recall that Charles had rescinded Loudon's elevation to an earldom back in 1633 as punishment for his opposition in Parliament. But even more important was Loudon's family, or should I say clan. You may recall from our first foray into Scotland, way back in episode 27, that the Campbells were the most powerful of the Highland clans. They were the crown's enforcers in the wild western portion of Scotland, forcing their rival clans to submit to the rule of law in exchange for preferential treatment. As one of the most powerful political blocs in the kingdom, where the Campbells came down in the present crisis could determine its outcome. 
Loudon wasn't THE Campbell. That honor fell to Archibald Campbell, the Earl of Argyll, who remained aloof. But the presence of a Campbell within the ranks of the supplicants was a troubling sign for the government. Under the guidance of these aristocrats, the supplicants elected representatives from each of the four estates, the nobility, the gentry, the urban elite, and the clergy. Each group of representatives was known as a table, with a fifth table, consisting of select members from each estate, acting as the movement's executive body. The tables then pressed for action. Unsatisfied with the progress they had made with the Scottish authorities, the tables began to push for direct negotiation with Charles. This would be extremely provocative, as it would cut out the Scottish Privy Council. Effectively, the tables would be acting as the governing body of Scotland. In late December, their pressure finally paid off. In an audience with the Privy Council, Roths, Balmerino, and Loudon formally announced that they intended to negotiate with the king directly. This threat was well designed to get Treguer's attention. His entire political career now depended on him being the man that brought the king and the supplicants together. If they cut him out of the loop, he'd likely be the scapegoat for the crisis. But I feel I've been unfairly portraying Treguer as a self-serving schemer. I mean, he was, but he also had altruistic reasons for wanting to prevent the supplicants from negotiating directly with Charles. He knew better than anyone else that the two sides' differences were irreconcilable. Put Lord Balmerino and Charles in the same room, and five seconds later, Scotland would be an armed rebellion. It was not hubris for Treguer to think that the only peaceful resolution now could come from a great man who could mediate between the two sides. Unfortunately, it was becoming clear that he would not be that man. The meeting did offer one glimmer of hope, though. In its aftermath, Treguer finally got the king's permission to travel to London and discuss the crisis in person. As a compromise, Treguer agreed to bring with him a formal declaration of the supplicants' program, rather than the supplicants themselves. This was for the English public, as much as for Charles himself. The supplicants realized early on that if this was heading towards violence, they would need friends in England. England's superior wealth and manpower could best Scotland's if it came to war. Their only hope was to prevent Charles from fully mobilizing that English wealth and manpower. Treguer arrived in London in January 1638 with the beginnings of a plan. He proposed a new, new Book of Common Prayer. This one produced along traditional Scottish lines, with the input of the clergy, not just the bishops, and approved by a general assembly as well as parliament. The bishops could be used as scapegoats. Treguer really liked this part of the plan. Charles would claim that his Scottish bishops had acted too rashly, and as the King of Scotland, he of course had always respected the traditional Scottish way of doing things. Treguer recruited his old partner, the Marquess of Hamilton, in trying to convince Charles of the plan's merits. Hamilton was, like Treguer, an ambitious man and a proud Scot. He had no desire to see the Scottish Kirk erased from history. Plus, Hamilton and Charles were lifelong friends. His influence would surely go a long way. Unfortunately, Hamilton wasn't Charles's only Scottish friend. One of the most prominent of these other London-based Scots was Robert Maxwell, the Earl of Nithsdale. You may remember him from episode 61, The Revocation. He was the Catholic noble who had inherited the family title when his brother got caught murdering his rivals. Nithsdale had urged Charles to take a firm line in the revocation crisis, and he did the same now. Charles found Nithsdale's take on events convincing for two reasons. First, Nithsdale urged Charles to see the broader European picture. It was naive to think this uprising had sprung up spontaneously. 
Look at all the Scottish officers that had volunteered in the Swedish or Dutch armies over the past generation. Was it really a coincidence that Scottish rebels were now using violence to push a radical Protestant agenda? Where was this confidence coming from? Could it be that the Scottish rebels knew that if it came to war, they'd have the military support of Sweden or the Netherlands? Charles could not submit to foreign interference in his realms. Secondly, Charles was naturally inclined to see the Scottish crisis as the work of a few troublemakers stirring up unrest, rather than a movement with broad support. If this was the work of a small handful of rabble-rousers, then a firm hand was needed. Since these nefarious plotters were after power themselves, concessions would only encourage further demands. Charles was predisposed to ignore Troguer's warnings of general resentment because of his experience in England. Charles saw the current crisis in Scotland as a repeat of his troubles in England in the 1620s. Back then, men like John Eliot and John Pym had tried to use Parliament as a national stage to stir up unrest, which they could then ride to power. Charles had put an end to that by shutting down Parliament and purging the Church of its radical elements. The relative peace and stability of the 1630s proved him right. Remove the instruments these guys used to inflame the masses, and they quickly disappeared. Over the course of his discussions with Treguer in January, Charles decided that the time had come to show some royal spine. He ordered Treguer to return to Scotland with two royal messages. The first was that Charles bore 100% of the responsibility for the new Book of Common Prayer. The bishops had followed his orders to the T. There was no room to blame them and not him. Secondly, Charles informed his Scottish subjects that these so-called tables were illegal, and anyone who participated in their meetings was committing treason. Treguer crossed back into Scotland in February 1638, assuming that war would soon follow. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Treguer was right that the king's proclamation elicited an immediate response on the part of the supplicants. But it did not inspire violence. At least, not yet. Just a little while ago, I said that the supplicants organized themselves into the tables so that they could more effectively negotiate with the crown, though some thought of this as a precursor to them forming their own government. Well, the king's uncompromising stand meant that the time had come to create a government. But the supplicants faced a problem, or rather two problems. First, the program so far had been one of grievances. The only thing that united the protesters was hatred for the new Book of Common Prayer and more generally the reforms that had eroded the Presbyterian Kirk. If the supplicants were to present Charles with a united front of Scottish subjects, they would need some kind of positive, common message the whole nation could rally around. Secondly, this unifying message had to thread a tiny ideological needle. It had to justify outright opposition to royal authority, while at the same time keeping the crown in its central place in the Constitution. Republicanism simply wasn't on the agenda within the supplicant leadership, and even if it was, that kind of radicalism wouldn't fly with the people of Scotland. Luckily, the supplicants had two tireless and intelligent thinkers within their ranks ready to produce a religious and constitutional statement that would unite Scotland under a single banner. 
The first was Archibald Johnson of Wareston, a lawyer, and the second was Alexander Henderson, a minister. Archibald Johnson was born into the commercial legal elite of Edinburgh. The Johnson family were also staunch defenders of the Presbyterian Kirk, and young Archibald was tutored by Robert Bailey, destined to be one of the leading clergymen of the supplicant movement. Johnson took his religious studies seriously, and obsessed over predestination, that most Calvinist of theological principles. As you well know, predestination stated that God had decided long ago who was damned and who was saved. One aspect of this we haven't yet explored was its psychological impact. If you didn't have control over the fate of your soul, then at some level you could never be entirely sure what that fate was. Calvinists often scoured their conscience or sought out providential signs in their lives to get clues as to where their souls would end up. Young Archibald Johnson was no different, and later reported that he once spent an entire day in prayer, from eight in the morning till six at night, searching for some sign of his salvation. It's worth keeping this kind of spiritual anguish in mind when we delve into Johnson's public career. I realize that in my narrative it's easy to see him, and men like him, as purely political animals, grasping at religious pretexts to further their own political goals. But it's important to remember that politics and personal religion were hardly inseparable in the 17th century. Johnson was a keen political opportunist, and a true believer. So while he devoted his energies to spiritual matters, he did not neglect the legal education that would allow him to make his living. By the mid-1630s, he had established himself as one of the most capable lawyers in Edinburgh, and the elites of the kingdom all had him on their speed dial. This made him an important link between the defenders of the Presbyterian Kirk and the ruling elite of the kingdom. Johnson was heavily involved in the conventicles, or private worship clubs, that had sprung up in response to the Anglicization of the church. When the crisis hit in the summer of 1637, he had friends among the respectable ruling classes and the protesters in the streets. In the lead-up to the prayer book's publication, Johnson had consulted with many like-minded ministers on how the law might be used to offer resistance. These consultations took on a greater significance when the women of Edinburgh prevented the book's use at St. Giles on the 23rd of July. Johnson celebrated the event and boasted that Scotland would never accept such popish drivel. If we licked up this vomit of Romish superstition again, he wrote to a friend, the Lord in his wrath would vomit us out again. As the supplicant protests turned into an organized movement in the fall of 1637, Johnson volunteered his services as its top legal advisor. He investigated the historical limits of royal prerogative in Scotland and regularly reported his findings to the tables. He also acted as the voice of the movement, drafting its petitions and other official statements. So naturally, the job of writing a foundational text for this quasi-government body fell to him. In essence, Johnson had to write a legal justification for rebellion that would be convincing enough to bring all of Scotland on board. As an appeal to Scottish religious identity would be crucial to winning hearts and minds, Johnson was aided by a clergyman, Alexander Henderson. Henderson was 54, more than twice as old as Johnson, and was the son of an obscure tenant farmer in Fife, just across the Firth of Forth from Edinburgh. He graduated from St. Andrews just as James left for England, meaning Henderson's career in the Kirk tracks closely with the narrative of the Scottish Church reforms in this podcast. Ironically, considering his involvement in the 1637 protests, Henderson began his career as a defender of bishops. Perhaps fresh out of university, he saw the benefits of hewing to the royal line. 
James clearly wanted bishops to return to prominence in Scotland, so it couldn't hurt a young minister's career to show his king some support. But Henderson found that supporting the king's policies did in fact hurt his career. One of his first postings was to Lucars, just outside St. Andrews. There he found that rumors of his pro-bishop attitude preceded him, and his would-be parishioners refused to welcome him. They barred the doors of the church and forced Henderson to break a window just to get inside. His story demonstrates just how difficult James's project of reform was. The king could ram legislation through Parliament all he liked, but in villages and towns across the kingdom, Scots stubbornly held on to their beliefs. Whether it was pressure from his parishioners, or disgust with the increasingly aggressive methods of the crown, Henderson eventually turned against James's reform project. When the Articles of Perth came out in 1618, Henderson publicly opposed them. Not only did he not follow the Perth Directive on kneeling for communion, but he actually published works in defense of the old Kirk services. This won him name recognition in Edinburgh, where there was a popular campaign to get him transferred to the capital. Henderson's opposition to the Articles of Perth made this politically impossible, but James hesitated to punish such a popular minister. For the next 15 years, Henderson lived a relatively quiet life in Lucars. It was a small village parish, but it was just five miles from the university at St. Andrews. He politely declined several offers to move to larger churches, but did stay in contact with a national network of ministers who felt the same way about the changes in the church. It was this network of ministers that played a crucial role in the July protest. You'll recall that the clergy had been given a preview of the new prayer book in preparation for its implementation. Henderson was among a group of clergy that met in Edinburgh in the weeks leading up to its unveiling. They discussed strategy and met with a group known as the Matrons of the Kirk, the wives of Kirk supporters in the gentry. Henderson warned these women that the king planned on destroying the Kirk and urged them to action. The protest of the 23rd of July grew out of this meeting. So both Johnson and Henderson had impeccable credentials as defenders of the Kirk. Johnson's legal expertise would be useful for constitutional arguments, and Henderson's popular preaching background would provide emotional heft. In late January 1638, they began writing what would become known as the Covenant, a universal oath that would bind all Scots to the cause. As a template for the religious component of the covenant, Johnson and Henderson drew on an anti-Catholic oath King James had sworn back in 1581. They updated it by focusing on the threats the current Kirk faced. The covenant defined the Scottish Church as firmly Calvinist. Any Arminianism was not tolerated. Presbyterianism was the only model for church governance, in other words, no bishops. And changes to the church could only happen through a free general assembly of the clergy confirmed by a free parliament. This last condition was crucial, as what a free general assembly and a free parliament meant in practice was a bit ambiguous. After all, the hated Articles of Perth had been drafted by a general assembly and confirmed by parliament twice. But Johnson argued that the general assemblies and parliaments of the 17th century had been working under duress, intimidated and manipulated by royal agents. Everything that had been passed since James left for England was in dispute. This ambiguity was intentional. Some in Scotland wanted to scrap all of James's reforms and return to the good old days of the 1580s. Others simply wanted to reverse the Articles of Perth and turn back the clock to 1618. The Covenanters, as the leaders of this protest movement were now being called, had to come up with a formula that everyone could get behind. They could iron out the details later. The political component of the Covenant was just as challenging. 
how could a kingdom of loyal subjects unite in opposition to their king? Johnson and Henderson achieved this by leaning on resistance theory, a dangerous idea embedded in the Calvinist tradition. The covenant called on all Scots to swear their allegiance to the king, the kirk, and each other. This three-layered loyalty raised potential conflicts. What if the king demanded that his subjects abandon the true church? Which bond was stronger, their love for the king or their love for the kirk? The covenant implied, but did not outright state, two guidelines to help conflicted Scots. First was the idea of conditional loyalty. Subjects had to obey the king, sure, but the king had duties and obligations too, most notably to the church. If he failed to fulfill his role as protector of the church, then he forfeited his claim on authority. This was the same argument the Dutch had used in their rebellion against their Catholic Habsburg overlords. Conditions could be placed on the obedience due to kings, but never on the obedience owed to God. The second justification for disobedience in the covenant came from Johnson's legal and constitutional background. He drew on a distinction between the crown as a constitutional abstract and the person of the king. The crown was the undisputed head of state and society, but it was possible for the person of the king to fail in his duties. When this happened, the rest of the political nation was justified in correcting the failure and restoring balance to the constitutional order. The covenant laid out what these duties were, especially with regards to the church, but was silent on what actions could be taken if the king failed to meet his responsibilities. This was far more than just a demand that the king use the General Assembly and Parliament to make decisions about the church. This was a frontal assault on Charles' authority as king. Back in London, Charles immediately recognized that if he accepted the covenant, he would be nothing more than a figurehead monarch. But up in Scotland, the covenant was a smash hit. That third oath of loyalty, to each other, was perhaps even more dangerous to Charles than the competing loyalty owed to the church. In essence, the covenant bound all Scots who swore it to each other, forming a unified body that would not stand down until all of their demands had been met. The window for Charles to negotiate a settlement, or at least peel some moderates away from the protest movement, was closing fast. On the 28th of February, 1638, the covenant was presented to the public in Edinburgh at St. Giles, site of the protest that had started everything seven months ago. In the next two or three weeks, the covenant spread throughout the kingdom, with nearly every adult male in Scotland swearing to its conditions. In some cases, coercion was necessary. Some ministers withheld communion from men who refused to swear it. But overall, Johnson and Henderson had crafted a powerful appeal to religious patriotism. The covenant sealed an unprecedented coalition of nobles, ministers, gentry, and commoners. But as much as this was a story of success on the part of the Covenanters, it was also one of failure on the part of Charles. A more engaged, better informed king should have been able to form an alliance with one of these groups. Class interests divided the Covenant coalition, but for now, frustration with the king acted as a unifying force. The major exception to the success of the Covenant was the Highlands, where the Reformation had never established deep roots. Catholicism and animosity towards the lowland Scots prevented many of the Highland clans from signing on to this provocative attack on Crown authority. Some scholars at the University of Aberdeen in the Northeast also hesitated. They questioned Johnson's inventive constitutional arguments and believed that a compromise solution was still possible. But the vast majority of lowland Scots took the oath. The King's proclamation that the tables were treason was a dead letter. 
Rather than back down, the movement had morphed into something even more treasonous. Next time, we'll see Charles finally take the Scottish protest movement seriously. Though whether that meant negotiating in good faith, or putting down the insurrection with English military power, remained uncertain. A despondent Earl of Treguer reported back to Charles that he may not have a choice. The book, Treguer wrote, can only be imposed by blood. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.